This is Psalms to God, Season 2, Episode 19, Church Leadership. You can find the show notes for this episode at www.psalmstogod.com. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after they had fasted, prayed, and laid hands on them, they sent them off. Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, CSB. Welcome back to the Psalms to God podcast. This is your host, Ree. We are finishing up the book of Acts. I know there are quite a few chapters left, but these last chapters really boil down to two major ideas. One is the spread of the gospel and the missionary work of the early church fathers. Um, And the other is how they dealt with differences of opinion when it came to doctrine and how they decided what the quote unquote golden standard was for the church's policy. And so in this episode, I want to talk about the spread of the gospel and how the church leadership structure kind of looked. And then in the next episode, we'll talk about the councils and how they came together to decide what they considered to be doctrine, sound doctrine. So in the book of Acts, we see three journeys that Paul takes. They're generally referred to Paul's first missionary journey, his second missionary journey, and his third missionary journey. Starting in chapter 13, we get a basis for God calling Paul to go on this journey to inform the Gentiles or to spread the gospel to the Gentiles. And it's interesting because I think most Christians know that this happened, but the details around it don't get talked about often. For instance, if you go into chapter 13, the first thing that we're told is that there were five prophets or teachers in the church at Antioch. Antioch was like the epicenter of Christianity at the time. This was like their headquarters. And... In this area, you had these leaders who were teaching and and spreading the word right there in the city. And so when God got ready to move the word forward and into the Gentile nations, he didn't take all of them and say, hey, everybody go scatter um, and then leave those people in Antioch to fend for themselves. But he also didn't send just one person to go spread the message. We often talk about Paul, but Paul did not go alone. He sent Barnabas with Paul. And I think it's interesting because it's kind of this idea of divide and conquer. 
right now the church that I am a member of is trying to refocus their vision to make it what they call an outward focused church. And, you know, I agree that the mission of the church is to reach out, to find those people who have not heard the good news and tell them the good news. But at the same time, one of the things that many churches struggle with is actually growing and discipling believers within their church. I've heard so many people talk about how, you know, they have like a revival and they get people amped up and people get really excited for Christ. And then when they come to the church, like it's not it, it's not what it seemed like. People were so energetic in trying to get them to believe, but now once they believe, they're just left, right? Like you I mean you have people who go through, you know, all of this pomp and circumstance for like a baptismal class and to bring people in but then they just leave them hanging once they've, you know, signed the, the, the lines or, or, or gone under the water or whatever. Um, and then they're left to figure out things on their own. And that's not good. And we see from the get go, like I said, they did almost a 50-50 split in how their church focused on being concerned about those people that were in the city right there. Um, and the people who were not there that they needed to spread the word to. So there were five people. Two of them, Paul and Barnabas, were sent to go out and continue spreading the good news. And three of them were selected to stay and continue to minister right there in that city to continue helping those who had already converted to grow and to convert people within that city that had not been converted yet. Now, the three people who were left behind I'm pretty sure if you just pop their names in a bowl or in a hat and pull them out to the average Christian, they're not going to know who those people are. I don't know that I would have known who they were off the top of my head, if I'm being honest. But it's interesting because if you start searching them, people have a lot to say about some of them. So. I want to start with um, Mannion because I don't really have that much to say about him. Um, he is the only description we're given about him is that he was a friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Herod was one of the kings. Um, this is not Herod the Great or Herod Agrippa that we talked about previously. This was a, another Herod, Herod Antipas. And um, it says that, that he was brought up with him or he was friends with him depending on what translation you read and so what we can gather is that he probably had a fairly well um, upbringing right he probably came from the upper class um, and he may have been you know a rich person or he may have been born into a family of importance and status something like that um, but it says a lot because this was a time when uh, Christianity was forbidden and so by telling us that one of these leaders was basically a childhood friend of the ruler of the, the the nation or the area the region it tells you where his heart was because he could have easily just gone along with the flow gone along with the status quo and probably managed to secure himself a a decent position. He could have been favored by the crown, if you will. 
Um, but it also reminds us that there was a diversity, right? There were people who were well off and there were people who were not so well off that were in the church. And so again, this whole concept of um, a diverse group of people who are coming together for the good of God and who are not letting their social status, their class and things like that get in the way of the kingdom of God. Now, the next person I wanna talk about is Lucius of Cyrene. Lucius of Cyrene is very important because it is a reminder of where the church actually started, where the beliefs actually began. Because a lot of people think that Christianity's history is European, but it's not. Churches began in the Middle East and in Northern Africa. Um, you already had people in Africa that believed in the Most High God. We saw this when we talked about Acts chapter 8. There was an Ethiopian man, which doesn't, I, don't, I mean, it is in Northern Africa, but it's really in the Horn of Africa, whatever. It's a little bit deeper into Africa is what I'm saying. Um, this man from Ethiopia was already a believer in God. He was already informed about Jewish customs. And if you go into Ethiopian history, which by the way, Ethiopian, Ethiopia is the oldest Christian nation, um, I think, officially speaking. And they have their own history and their own ideology about um, marriage between uh, Solomon, or I don't know if I should say marriage, but a child being born between Solomon and the Queen of Sheba, who was from Ethiopia. And um, there's a whole you know idea that their kings were descended from Solomon and so there's been a long-standing history of of Judaism and Christianity in Ethiopia and in Africa in general um, because there was so much interaction between the Israelites the Egyptians the Israelites and the Ethiopians and all of these people that were in Africa so some of the first churches to pop up, like I said, were in Ethiopia, in Alexandra, and in Cyrene. Cyrene was in Libya, which is also in northern Africa for people who are not well-versed in uh, geography. And Lucius was a Jew from this area in northern Africa. Um, and so, you know, it's just a reminder, guys, that... Christianity was not a European thing. Um, they were actually, the Europeans were actually kind of the last to find out. Well, maybe the, maybe if you go further east into Asia, but um, there was a lot more intermingling between the African nations and Israel than people really like to give credit for. And that's why I wanted to focus in on Lucius of Cyrene for a little bit just to mention the fact that he was from this area in Northern Africa, and it was known for being a safe haven for, I guess, Jewish people in that region. Now, the other man that was left behind to stay in Antioch and build the church was a man named Simon or Simeon, who was called Niger. Niger means black in Latin. And that presents 
interesting possibilities for the character of Simon. Many people have posited that Simon must have been a black man because he was called black. And as much as I agree that the Israelites were not white people, that they they had brown skin, um, I don't think that that is necessarily the conclusion to be drawn from the fact that he was called black. And I'm gonna tell you why. First and foremost, the concept of race that we have today is a new invention, okay? And when I say new, I mean around the time of colonialism and like the Inquisition is when they started to classify people based on their skin color. Before that, people were really just classified by their tribes. And so for someone during this time period, I don't think that like, they weren't going around referring to people as black people and white people. That wasn't a common thing. So the idea that, you know, oh, this, this had to refer to his skin color, it's not necessarily, I mean, that's like a modern interpretation. It's reading with modern eyes and not necessarily reading it from the historical standpoint of what was happening in that time period. Now that doesn't mean he did not have brown skin and it doesn't mean that he couldn't have been, you know, much darker than other people. I read one commentary where someone was trying to prove that this did not prove that the Israelites were dark skin and it, it was very convoluted um, because this person was trying to say that if they singled him out and called him black, that meant it was an anomaly and they were not black. But black people refer to dark-skinned people as being black all the time. Like, blackness comes in shades. Whether you are, you know, referring to brown in terms of, of African brownness or in terms of, like, India, like, it, it doesn't really matter. There's a range of shades. So for one person to be uh, you know, uniquely darker than the others. It doesn't mean that the others were automatically not brown. Um, but in all honesty, there are other possibilities of why he could have been called black. For instance, some translations um, may say like surnamed and posit that this was his surname. If you are from the U.S., you know, there are many people whose last name is black. And so that's a possibility. One of the reasons that people are last do have the surname of Black is from being blacksmiths. Um, it is possible that Simon was a blacksmith before he became a prophet or a teacher. It's possible that he may have, you know, had some sort of job that always had him covered in soot. And that's why he was called Black. We really don't know. Um, and I, I wanted to talk about that because one of the things that I, I don't like is when we want things to be true and so we start pushing faulty doctrine, we start you know feeding our own interpretations into the text. And when you do things like this, it doesn't, it, it doesn't hold because it's, it's not there. It's something you made up because you wanted it to be there. Um, and this is all, it, it causes problems in general for interpretation. And it, in a situation like this, like it really doesn't matter 
But at the same time, when you're dealing with people who may be new to the faith or um, people who may be confused, it just makes it more confusing. And then you start getting into arguments with people about things that are not really sound. Um, and so while, like I said, I agree with the the idea that the Israelites were, you know, brown, that they were not like how Europeans have painted them in artwork. They were definitely not blonde haired, blue eyed, white people. Um, but I do think that when you go about arguing that point, you have to use solid, credible facts from the Bible, not things that don't really stand up under pressure. And that's the only reason. So I would definitely stay away from using Simon called Niger um, as a proof point that they were black. Um, it, I mean, like I said, it's possible. It's possible that he was, you know, extremely dark skinned and that's why they called him black. It's also possible that it was just his last name. It's possible that he was a blacksmith. There are lots of possibilities and the Bible doesn't clarify that for us. There are better texts if, you're, if your whole point is to prove um, something, you know, like that. But in general, these three people were the ones who stayed behind and as we see um they're not we're not given a lot of information about them and yet they were entrusted as prophets and teachers and i think it's a reminder that everybody doesn't have to be a paul um everybody doesn't have to be you know the billboard name and they can still make a grand difference and be a leader without being you know in the front and in the spotlight now, I do want to touch on Paul and Barnabas's journey um, to spread the gospel because that's also an important part of Acts. We talk about how Paul goes out and, you know, it. I don't really want to go into detail like, oh, he went here and then he went there and then he went here. It, it's very complicated. Luckily, I have a study Bible that has a map that shows me like a, like a nice little visual of how he traveled to spread the gospel and things like that. But one of the things that I find interesting, and I mentioned this in a previous episode, but I'm going to mention it again because um, it, it keeps coming up as you go through the book of Acts. So Paul was appointed to teach the Gentiles. And time and time again, um, you know, pastors and religious scholars will tell you that the Gentiles are the not Jews, right? You had Jews and then you had Gentiles. And yet, if you look at the images and you, look, you read through and you find out where Paul went, Paul never goes to Africa. He never goes to Northern Africa. We already know, like I said, Lucius was from Cyrene. There was a church in Alexandria. Um, Ethiopia had a Christian population growing. And yet Paul never goes down there. Now, that's not to say that nobody went down there. But it's interesting because Paul was given to the Gentiles. But Paul doesn't go to Asia. He does not go to China. He doesn't go to India. He doesn't go to Africa. He goes to Europe, the same place that Genesis refers to as the Isle of the Gentiles. 
where the sons of Japheth went. And he's always within this, you know, the the Greek Roman area, right? He's going to places like Cyprus and, um, you know, Iconium and stuff like that, right there in that northern region, south, southern Europe, northern Middle East. Um, and it wouldn't have been that hard for him to go into Egypt or to go into Alexandra or to go to Cyrene where uh, Lucius was from or anything like that. And so you have to wonder when God said, go to the Gentiles, what did Gentile mean? I am still not convinced that Gentile actually means not Jewish. I still believe that Gentile meant European because like I said, when they talk about the people from these other tribes, they always refer to them by name. They refer to the Egyptians as Egyptians. They refer to the Ethiopians as Ethiopians. They refer to the Samaritans as Samaritans. They refer to the Canaanites as Canaanites. The Philistines as Philistines. They don't ever call them Gentiles. The only time they reference Gentiles is when they're talking about the people who descended from Japheth. And this is the area that Paul stayed in throughout all of his missionary work. So I, I had to bring it up again just because it's a recurring theme as you go through the book of Acts that it's glaringly obvious. So the thing is though, um, back on back on track of Paul spreading the gospel. Um, when I read it, I was like, dog, Paul was everywhere. And, I, and you stop and you think about it. And it's interesting because Paul went to all of these different places and went and preached and, and spread the gospel and helped people start churches. And a lot of us are afraid to just mention God in casual conversation with people who live next door. Um, in fact, I I will be the first to tell you, I don't even know my neighbors. Um, I see them in passing occasionally. I may wave at them, but I don't know their names. I don't know where they're from. I don't know anything about them. And it seemed so odd to me. I'm like, wow, you know, God told him to spread the word and he literally stopped everything and went everywhere. I mean, we don't. I don't really know. Was he still a tax collector? What was his job? How did he, how was he able to do that? And it's a conversation I don't think we have enough in our churches um, about spreading the word. I, I don't necessarily know that when we say spread the gospel today that it looks the same because the gospel has spread a lot farther um, than what what was the case in Paul's day, um, you know, it, it may not mean that you have to get up and go to another country, though it may. Um, but I just, I, I just wonder, because it would seem that we would spend more emphasis on teaching people to go out and preach. Um, and we really don't. Um, I'm just, I don't know. I'm just in awe at the when I look at how far Paul traveled and 
how much time he dedicated to teaching other people about the gospel. Um, and it, it's just, it's completely opposite of what our churches look like today. Most of us, we just want to go and get a word for ourselves. And we don't really want to go any further. And even the people who are doing the preaching, you know, most people, they set up a building and they call that a church. And then that's just where they go. They're not necessarily going out and trying to find new people. They're they're kind of leaving it up to the congregation. Like if you've ever heard, you know, a, an elder or a pastor be like, don't forget to invite somebody to the church. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We should as individuals be inviting people. But um, in this case, we see that the leaders, the teachers, they're the ones who went out to go get more people. Can you like can can you imagine like I go to I attend a church where there is three pastors. Can you imagine if one of them was just like, yeah, I'm I'm going to go on a journey throughout the southeastern United States to convert people. I'll be back later and he just left to go convert people. That would be um no one would expect that. Like most most churches don't have that type of a structure. Um, but it's clearly here in the book of Acts. So yeah, I just wanted to bring out some of these points um, as you think about how the church is structured, what its purpose is, who was at the heart of founding the church, how it started to spread, why it started to spread. And we're going to go into more of the history from a like historical perspective but I wanted to start in the book of Acts just to get that biblical foundation before we really dive into that. So, like I said, chapters 13 through 28, um, there's a lot in there talking about Paul's journeys and about who was heading up the church and how they were structuring it. I definitely recommend you read it. Um, and in the show notes, I will list out some information about Paul's journeys and which chapters talk about his journey. And next week, we're going to talk about the councils and how they dealt with differences of opinion on doctrine. I will see you guys next week. Bye.